Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. In the spring, the National Constitution Center hosted a series of online constitutional classes. Students, teachers, and parents joined in constitutional discussions with scholars and educators from the National Constitution Center and guest speakers. As we get ready to begin the classes again on August 31st, we're sharing one of our favorite lectures from the spring on today's episode. Jeffrey Rosen was joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Eric Foner for a conversation about the Constitution and slavery in America, including the history and legacy of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments ratified during Reconstruction. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. So, Professor Foner, first of all, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Nice to see you again. Let's just begin with the text of the 13th Amendment. And I'm reading friends from the Interactive Constitution, the National Constitution Center's great online platform that includes not only the text, but also essays by leading scholars describing the core meaning of those amendments. And Curry's gonna put it up on the screen, so I don't even have to read it from the Interactive Constitution. I'll just read it from the screen. Here we go. Read along with me. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And then it says Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Professor Foner, what do those words mean and what were they trying to achieve? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, thank you for reading the 13th Amendment, uh, one of the crucial documents of American history, obviously. Um, One might begin by just pointing out that This is the place where the word slavery is first introduced into the Constitution. The original Constitution uh, contained protections of slavery, such as the uh, three-fifths clause, giving the uh, slave states uh, greater uh, power in Congress by counting some of their slaves and allocating representation. The fugitive slave clause, which basically said that uh, those who run away have to be returned. Uh, But they didn't use the word slavery. They talked about other persons or persons held to labor. Uh, Here, slavery is mentioned directly in the act of abolishing it. Um, The, you know, some people say, well, didn't the Emancipation Proclamation do that? And the answer is, well, not not entirely. Um, The Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln on January 1st, 1863, declared free a little over 3 million slaves. There were about 4 million slaves in the United States when the Civil War broke out. The Emancipation Proclamation declared that about 3.2 million of them were free, but that left about 700,000 unaffected. It didn't apply to the border states, that is the slave states that remained in the Union. Uh, Lincoln also exempted the state of Tennessee for complicated reasons, which is part of the Confederacy. But uh, more to the point, perhaps, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't abrogate all the laws, the state laws that established and protected slavery. Slavery is created by state law, and uh, freeing large numbers of slaves doesn't exactly end the institution. The 13th Amendment made it impossible for states to have laws which created or protected slavery. So slavery can no longer exist. And, you know, it seems so inevitable a result of the Civil War that we might not quite realize how radical a um, departure this was. Um, First of all, 
and this is relevant to a discussion we'll have on the 14th uh, Amendment, um, the 13th does not have what they call a state action clause. It just says you cannot have slavery. It applies to everybody. It applies to government. It applies to individuals. It applies to churches, to uh, corporations. Nobody, no entity, nobody can own a slave anymore in the United States. And there is no compensation provided to the slave owners. This is abolition with no payment to the owners for the loss of what was a legal form of property uh, in the states. This was, the slaves were the largest single um, property in the United States, category of property. If you count the slaves as property, they are property and human beings, obviously. Um, but the, the abrogation of such a giant amount of property is something that doesn't happen very often in the world, world history. Um, and the second clause, the second uh, clause where it just says that Congress shall have the power to enforce this is also a very radical change in our constitution. Generally speaking, uh, pre, the, the, the constitution and the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments restricted the powers of Congress. Um, and uh, now you have Congress empowered to enforce the abolition of slavery. It doesn't tell you what that means exactly. What, 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 what does it mean to, inf does it mean that the federal government now has the right to protect the basic rights of these former slaves? I mean, that's what the Republicans thought who uh, passed the 13th Amendment. In other words, it, it opens the door to future legislation to make sure that the liberation, the freedom of the slaves is actually implemented in a, you know, in a, in a correct manner. It means that abolition is an ongoing process. It's not just a one-time uh, amendment and that's, you know, and that's the end of it. But let me also point to other, the other uh, clause in this 13th Amendment, which has generated a lot of discussion lately, uh, the exemption, the criminal exemption. No, slavery or involuntary servitude cannot, exist, servitude cannot exist except as a punishment for crime. Now, why do they put that in? Um, what's interesting, if you go back to the Congressional Globe, the debates, it's barely mentioned. Almost nobody mentioned this clause. Uh, some people looking back from 150 years or so think, well, this was a giant conspiracy to enable the system of convict labor, which would be developed in the South later in the 19th century, where thousands of mostly African-Americans would be convicted of crime and then leased out from prisons to work for, you know, railroads, factories, plantations. Um, and this courts have held was okay under the 13th Amendment because of that criminal exemption. Criminals can be forced to labor, whereas no free person can. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I mean, the problem really is just inadvertence. They didn't quite understand the uses to which this clause could be put. The thing is that all this language was simply copied from the Northwest Ordinance uh, of 1787. The criminal exemption was in there. It had become almost boilerplate language. It was in the constitutions of many of the Northern states already where they barred slavery. The idea of making prisoners work uh, was pretty widespread, partly to pay the cost of prisons and partly because uh, some people thought it was good for the character. It would help in rehabilitation if prisoners could be put to labor. Um, but before the Civil War, there were very few prisons. It's not like you had a giant system. They, they were, in the South, there were hardly any prisons. If a 
slave commits a crime, there's hardly any point in putting him in jail. The point of having a slave is that he work, not that he sit in jail. So uh, there were very few people in prison before the war. So it, it but but this opened the door un, in an unintended way to a great abuse uh, later in the uh, 19th and early uh, 20th centuries, particularly, but not entirely, uh, in the Southern states. But putting that aside, the 13th Amendment is certainly a radical change in the American system. The, the abrogation of this institution, which had been here for centuries uh, and now uh, will no longer exist. But of course it opened, the next question is, well, what is gonna be the status of these 4 million people in American society? It doesn't tell you that. And that becomes part of the uh, political debate over reconstruction. Well, thank you for that wonderful uh, distillation of the essence of the 13th Amendment. You've answered some of the questions that our students have been posing, including Barney Brower, who asked what was the legal use of the phrase persons held to labor at the time of the Constitution, and, and Michael Ryan, who asked why is there an exception written into this amendment to accept slavery as a form of legal punishment. And you've helped us with the transition to the 14th Amendment. Now, friends, keep posting your questions in the box, and after we've run through the gist of the three amendments, then I'll uh, take all of them. Professor Foner, after the exemption for persons held to labor, Southern states passed the infamous Black Codes. And they, as you've described in your book, uh, Second Founding, uh, denied free African-Americans the right to make and enforce contracts, to sue and be sued, to engage in the ordinary occupations of life, and to exercise the basic privileges and immunities of citizenship. Congress responded, as you say, by passing the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which extended to all citizens of the United States, white and African-American alike, these basic civil rights. The bill was vetoed by President Johnson. Congress repassed it over his veto. But Congress had some doubts about whether it had the constitutional authority to pass the Civil Rights Act. And that was one of the many crucial purposes of the 14th Amendment, which is on the screen and I'm going to read now. Friends, before I read this, I have to say this to you. I teach a whole constitutional law class on the 14th Amendment. You can take weeks for each of the sentences in this clause, all of the most important modern controversies that the Supreme Court decides, from uh, marriage equality for gays and lesbians, to voting rights, to questions involving affirmative action and racial discrimination, all stem from this amendment. So we're gonna pack a huge amount into this, but I'm gonna read it and Professor Foner's gonna distill it uh, better than anyone else can. He's just, he's just the scholar to do it. So here we go. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Just on that point, Cody Wells asks, hi, Professor Foner, what was the significance of including and subject to the jurisdiction thereof in the 14th Amendment? And you know what? The amendment is so long and it's a great question. So let me stop right there and ask you, what was the significance <laughs> of including those words? Well, <laughs> <laughs> like every, as, as you said, like every other part of the 14th Amendment, that is open to debate nowadays. And part of the reason it's open to debate is the 14th Amendment is very long and very complicated, and it's the longest amendment ever, and it's the Constitution. Um, and uh, it was the product of intense debate in Congress, of numerous changes in language as it worked its way through Congress, uh, many inputs. It was a compromise between different factions of the Republican Party. In other words, there is no one single meaning to almost any of the language of the 14th Amendment, which is why it is subject to interpretation forever. 
And before going to that one clause, just to underline what Jeffrey Rosen said, um, just two days ago, there was a significant 14th Amendment decision handed down by the Supreme Court about juries and whether jury convictions must be unanimous. There were still two states which allowed 10 to 2 votes for to convict someone in a criminal case, even at, not unanimously. Uh, the main point is that I don't want to debate the merits of that issue, but that's a 14th Amendment case. The 14th Amendment limits what the states can do in terms of people's rights. And the Supreme Court the other day told the states they must have, they must require unanimity in criminal convictions. But that comes right out of the 14th Amendment. Uh, and um, that's part of the due process of law, et cetera, et cetera. But let's go back to the beginning. You asked that uh, about the jurisdiction thereof. The first sentence or the first part of the 14th Amendment establishes this principle of birthright citizenship. Anybody born in the United States is a citizen of the United States. You might say, well, yeah, what else are they going to be? Of course. But that was not the case before the Civil War. States determined who was a citizen, not necessarily the federal government. And certainly when it came to African-Americans, free African-Americans, um, this principle did not apply. The Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision in 1857 said, no, no black person could be a citizen, whether they're free, slave, or anything else. Born in this country, doesn't matter. Citizenship is for white people only. That was what Chief Justice Tawney said in the uh, famous or infamous Dred Scott decision, which was actually mentioned, I think, by Justice Kavanaugh in the decision two days ago, um, in debating about overturning past, past rulings. And he said, look, if there are really bad decisions like the Trent Scott decision, they deserve to be overturned later on. But anyway, um, so anyone born in the United States is a citizen. This is the first establishment in the Constitution of a national norm as to who is a citizen. But then you have that and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Well, it's pretty clear from the debates that the, what they meant there were Native Americans particularly Native Americans living on reservations. At that time, Native Americans were still considered citizens of their tribe, of their tribal sovereignty. You're a citizen of the Cherokee Nation or the Choctaw Nation or the Apache Nation. The government dealt with Native Americans through treaties, not just through ordinary legislation. So it was pretty clear in the debates that that was whom uh, would be, who were being excluded uh, Native Americans born and subject to tribal sovereignty were not citizens of the United States. Then, you, Well, what about a Native American who like picked up and moved to Chicago or something like that? Was that person a citizen? And the answer to that is it wasn't really very clear for quite a while. It took until 1924 for Congress to pass a law saying that all Native Americans, no matter where they're born or living, are citizens of the United States. There's one other little group uh, very small that was uh, mentioned in the debates about this, and that was uh, people uh, able to have diplomatic immunity. In other words, let's say the wife of the British ambassador uh, gives birth to a child here. Uh, is that child an American citizen? Well, no, because the that family is not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. They have diplomatic immunity. You know, there was an incident related to this just recently, a um, I think the wife of an American diplomat in England was involved in a car accident where a British 
kid who was riding his bicycle was killed. And the British wanted her to stay in the country and be put on trial, but she left. And there's no way to get her because she had, she claimed diplomatic immunity, that um, she's not subject to British jurisdiction because she's represent, the wife of someone representing the United States. Obviously, that's a very small number of people that we're talking about, children of diplomats. But those were who they were referring to when it came to um, and when it came to people not citizens, even though they're born in the United States. Great, thank you so much for that. So that's a great answer uh, about the significance of that jurisdictional exception. Friends, as you heard from Professor Foner, that's important, but it's a pretty technical question. The idea that Indians not taxed, for example, are not birthright citizens, but everyone else is. And the big idea, as Professor Foner said, is the first sentence of the amendment overturns the Dred Scott decision, which infinitely said that African-Americans have no rights which white people are bound to respect, and said that everyone born or naturalized in the United States uh, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a citizen of the United States and the state that we're in there reside. Now, um, Jeffrey, let me, just, let me just add that, th th to stop for a second, this is a really important principle for our country. It, it says that you, it, Neither You don't have to be a certain race. You don't have to be a certain religion. You don't have to speak a certain language, ethnic group. Citizenship goes beyond all of those things. There are many countries in the world today where citizenship must be linked with a religion or a language or an ethnic origin or something like that. And so that many people born in countries are not really considered citizens of those countries. There's a big fight going on in India right now where a law was recent, recently passed to sort of push a lot of Muslims out of citizenship so that it would be more of a Hindu nation. But we don't have that kind of principle and it's a very important feature of American society. It's a crucial point and thank you for emphasizing its uh, significance for our friends. Katie asks, Katie Scholler, to clarify the 14th Amendment allowed for the Civil Rights Act because it gave the federal government the ability to protect rights within the states. And Katie, that's exactly right. That's a beautiful way of putting it. And the uh, section two of the amendment, or, or sorry, uh, section four, which says that Congress can enforce this act by appropriate legislation, means that Congress can pass laws like the Civil Rights Act, which protect the basic privileges or immunities of citizenship. And that helps us understand the meaning of the next sentence of the amendment, which says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What are those privileges or immunities? Well, John Bingham, the author of the 14th Amendment, said they were the basic rights of citizenship that the South was abridging with the Black Codes. They included both rights to make in contracts, to sue and be sued, basic civil rights that were the same from state to state, but also the basic rights in the most of the first 10 amendments to the Bill of Rights. So that's why one thing that this sentence does, the original Bill of Rights had only bound Congress. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech and so forth. This second sentence ensures that the states are forbidden from infringing the same rights that Congress was forbidden from infringing in the original Bill of Rights. Uh, Professor Foner, that's an introduction to the Privileges or Immunities yeah, Clause, no, but the Supreme Court sort of read it out of existence and tell us more about what the significance of that clause is and what our friends should know. About. <laughs> you know, uh, th th that's, that's fine, of course. The, the, one of the problems, as I said before, is there were so many inputs, or so many people putting forth their ideas about the 14th Amendment that it, you can't just um, 
it's hard to specify. For example, privileges or immunities, that phrase is already in the Constitution, the original Constitution, but there was no definition of what they were. Bingham, a key author of the 14th Amendment, basically, he, as you said, he said, the Bill of Rights is what we're really talking about here. All those liberties guaranteed in the Bill of Rights now must be respected by the states. Um, and so this decision just two days ago is part of that, that the that the states have to abide by the unanimous requirement for criminal convictions. But there were others, more radical people who said, no, you know, the privileges and immunities go way beyond that. They include, let's say, the right to an education. If you're a citizen, you should have the right to an education in the United States or the right to sort of economic opportunity or you name it. What comes with being a citizen of the United States? Is it just a label or does it have substantive meaning? And that keeps getting debated. Now, the Supreme Court, very quickly, actually, in the slaughterhouse cases, um, uh, it kind of limited the, the, what those privileges or immunities are. They, they, they came up with a very narrow list of what the uh, basic rights you get by being an American citizen. And one of the results of that is that when the Bill of Rights is applied to the states, it's usually done through a different part of the 14th Amendment, the so-called due process clause. The privileges and immunities clause has become, if not a dead letter, then at least something that is very rarely referred to in Supreme Court decisions. Other parts of the 14th Amendment have been used. When you mentioned the gay marriage decision, the Brown v. Board of Ed decision, many great famous decisions that come out of the 14th Amendment, they don't mention the privileges and immunities clause. Indeed, in the decision two days ago, Justice Clarence Thomas said this. I agree with the principle, he said, but we're using the wrong part of the 14th Amendment. We should use privilege. He wants to revive privileges or immunities um, and downplay the um, due process clause for complicated reasons I don't want to go into. But in other words, it's still an open question what exactly the privileges or immunities of citizens uh, actually are in this country. Great, thank you for all that. We have a question about what was the decision from a, two days ago that we're referring to? It's called the Ramos decision. You can find it at Supreme Court. Ramos, Court. Ramos, yeah. Exactly. And as Professor Foner says, that was a decision that said that the two states that don't have unanimous jury verdicts have to have them because the Sixth Amendment guarantee of unanimous juries has to be incorporated against the states. Um, it applies just as much to the states as to the federal government. And he talked about this question of what clause incorporates the Bill of Rights? As he said, the Supreme Court in the Slaughterhouse case basically read the Privileges or Immunities Clause out of existence, and all of the rights of the Bill of Rights have been incorporated or applied against the states through the Due Process Clause, not the Privileges or Immunities Clause. But this Ramos decision is really important because it's one of the few parts of the Bill of Rights that had not been incorporated or applied against the states, and you have most of the justices, uh, six to three, saying it must incorporate, although Justice Clarence Thomas says that it should incorporate through the Privileges or Immunities Clause, the other justices want to incorporate it through the Due Process Clause. Now we're just gonna keep moving along. We're almost at the end of these really important clauses of the 14th Amendment, and you, have, you guys have so many great questions. We're gonna get them as soon as we put the main principles on the table. The next sentence in this crucially important amendment is, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law. 
Those are known as the due process clauses and the equal protection clause. The first thing that strikes me, Professor Conner, is that they apply to all persons, not just to citizens. Yeah, uh, so what's the significance of that? And then tell us, what was, yes, what was, what's, why was it, uh, why Bingham, was that happening? Yeah. Bingham said in the debates, John, uh, Congressman John Bingham, that this, uh, he wanted it to apply beyond citizens. There were, particularly that there were many aliens, that is immigrants in the country, who had not become citizens as of yet, and uh, maybe never would. But he, he, these basic rights, he said, apply to everybody in the country, not just citizens. And that is relevant to the moment because there's all this debate about immigrants, people who are not documented, et cetera, et cetera. But the language here applies to everybody, not just citizens. And uh, that's different. The first part, privileges, immunities of citizens here, it's any person, everybody within the United States is covered by this basic protection of their rights. Now, again, looking at the language, uh, the 13th Amendment introduced the word slavery. The 14th Amendment here introduces the word equal. Now, the original Constitution did talk about some people getting equal numbers of electoral votes, but that's a different point. Um, the, the concept of equality for Americans is written into the Constitution in the 14th Amendment. That's a critical change. And um, it makes the Constitution something it really hadn't been before the Civil War. That is a vehicle that people can appeal to who feel they are being denied equality of one kind or another uh, in, in the country. And many of the key decisions of the 1950s, 60s, up to the present, are equal protection decisions. When the states in one way seem to favor or uh, uh, one group of people over another, uh, the equal protection clause can be brought into play. Now, again, what is, you know, this is always open for debate. What is equality anyway? Is it equality of opportunity, equality of condition? Is it legal equality, political equality, social equality? There are, you know, there's all sorts of possible debates about that. But the principle of equality among citizens is a crucial uh, element here of the 14th Amendment. Thank you for signaling how crucially important it was that the word equality is introduced in the Constitution for the first time. Friends, if you go to the Interactive Constitution and click on the 14th Amendment and click on this amazing tool called the drafting table, you'll see the early drafts of the 14th Amendment. You'll see the language about equality evolving. And I'm looking at it now, and on January 11th, 1866, toward the beginning of the debates, John Bingham pro uh, proposed the first draft of the 14th Amendment, which says, the Congress shall have power to make all laws necessary and proper to secure to all persons in every state within this union equal protection in their rights of life, liberty, and property. Professor Foner, what does that draft say about how Bingham saw the connection between the due process rights of life, liberty, and property, and equal protection, and how determined he was to ensure that Congress had the power to protect people in their equal protection and their rights of life, liberty, and property. Well, yeah, I mean, Bingham was absolutely adamant that that you could not leave these things in the hands of the states, that Congress had to oversee it. What's interesting about what you just read, where it begins, Congress shall have the power, etc., some uh, members of the House said to Bingham, you know, there's a problem with that language. What if Congress doesn't do it? You're putting the whole owner, the burden here on Congress. But what if, you know, people, you have a majority of some point that doesn't want to protect these rights? Then they will go unprotected. It's better to make it sort of automatic. It, so the language that finally 
is adopted says no state shall. It, in other words, it bars the states from interfering with these basic rights. Um, now, then in the fifth clause, it says, again, Congress shall have the power to enforce this. But even if you took that away, the Constitution bars the states from taking action which deprives Americans of these basic rights. So it's the, the, the evolution of the language of the 14th Amendment from January to June 1866 is awfully complicated, and um, but very important to attend to because the changes in language sort of reflect the balance of thinking in Congress about these key issues. Thank you for all that. Uh, Kirsten asks, is there a link to the drafting website? If you click on the NCC homepage, constitutioncenter.org, or just Google interactive constitution, you'll, you'll find it fast. So let's- We Professor will put it in the document we send you for the homework. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Professor Froner, one, one question about this doctrine that I think our students will have to uh, pause on uh, called substantive due process. The, the due process clause says, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That sounds like a procedural protection that states can deprive people of life, liberty, or property with due process of law, in other words, by a jury trial and proper uh, evidence and conviction. But the Supreme Court, in cases including Roe v. Wade, have said that the due process clause has a substantive component, and there are some liberties, like the right to choose uh, abortion, that are so important substantively that states can't deprive them even with due process of law. So what is the doctrine of substantive yeah, due process? I, know, where did it come right. from? I, I think the substantive due process, that is that the term due process, as you said, seems to suggest procedures, do the process. You can't just fling someone in jail without giving them a trial or something like that, right? There has to be a legal procedure. It doesn't really talk about, it doesn't imply the outcome of the, of the procedure, but at least there's a fair, you're getting your day in court. But the court, but the Supreme Court over time, as you said, has expanded this to include substantive rights, uh, the right to terminate, the right to, and some of those rights don't exist anywhere in the text of the Constitution, the right to privacy, right? There's no right to privacy listed specifically in the Constitution, but the Supreme Court in the 1960s said, well, that's part of liberty. The right to privacy is part of the liberty that people cannot be deprived of. But as Jeffrey here said, by any method, you can give them a perfectly fair trial, but if you deprive them of basic legal rights, that's not good enough. Um, so, but I think a lot of this is because of what we said before. The, the, I think Bingham expected these rights to be protected under the Privileges or Immunities Clause, which was earlier on in the 14th Amendment. Well, once the Supreme Court kind of abrogated the Privileges or Immunities Clause, uh, people had to find other parts of the 14th Amendment to um, uphold the basic rights. I mean, you know, a lot of this What's interesting about the 14th Amendment is a lot of it is geared to the status of the former slaves who, as Jeffrey said before, the southern states were passing these laws to deprive them of basic rights. And Congress wanted to make sure that states couldn't do that. But actually, there's no mention of race in the 14th Amendment. It applies to everybody. And all sorts of groups have used the 14th Amendment to bolster their rights uh, so that you're setting up, you're dealing with the problem of the former slaves, but you're also setting up a set of national standards that can apply to everybody and everywhere throughout the country and to everybody regardless of race. And that's why the 14th Amendment has been so powerful a, um, 
you know, a, a tool in the hands of those who have tried to expand the, the so-called rights revolution of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, where new rights were created or old rights were protected. Uh, and so often using the language of the 14th Amendment. Thank you for all that. Uh, Madeline Kessler, picking up on our discussion, asked, where did the right to privacy in Roe v. Wade come from? It's a really great question, Madeline. We'll talk about it in detail next week when we talk about substantive due process rights. But as Professor Foner said, the Supreme Court discerned a right to privacy in the 1960s from different places. Some justices found it in what they called penumbras formed by emanations from other protections for privacy and other amendments. Others located it in the Ninth Amendment, which says that the enumeration of certain rights shouldn't be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Uh, today, some people find the right in the right to equality. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said that restrictions on abortion impose burdens on women that are not imposed on men, and therefore it's a violation of women's equality. That's why the right is, is hotly debated among constitutional scholars. Some say that it's firmly rooted in all these other provisions. Others say it doesn't appear in the text. So yeah, you know, you mentioned, Jeffrey, the Ninth Amendment. It's, you know, what just the last week has shown us how different parts of the Constitution that probably were not even thought about for years suddenly pop up. The Tenth Amendment, I haven't heard as much discussion of the Tenth Amendment as we have ever since President Trump, you know, a week or so ago said, well, I have the authority to tell the states what to do. All these governors said, wait, wait, wait a minute, the Tenth Amendment uh, said, limits what the federal government could do. Uh, but we haven't heard about the Tenth Amendment in a long time. So the, the Constitution is a kind of endless source of interpretation, debate, discussion, which is what it's really supposed to be. Absolutely. And friends, you can always learn more about the constitutional questions in the news by listening to the We the People podcast that the Constitution Center is running every week. And we debate those issues. And today, just after we finish recording this class, we're going to film a great debate on executive power and whether the president has total authority, which will be posted on Thursday. So our next questions are a good transition to the 15th Amendment. One of I our- I point out one other part of the 14th Amendment. Oh, absolutely, yeah, before we go. Before we stop, which is yeah. weirdly relevant today, but which was not on the second section. Yes, tell us about that. Which is almost incomprehensible. If you read it, it's almost, but it basically what it said in plain English is that if a state, not, now at that time it's men, but today it would be anybody. But if a state denies citizens the right to vote, it will lose some of its representatives in Congress. So let's say at that time, Mississippi was about 50% black, 50% white. If Mississippi said black people can't vote, they lose half their congressmen. Um, that has never been enforced. Never, 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 even when the Southern states denied blacks the right to vote. But my feeling is it should be enforced. It, it should be enforced today. There are states today which are denying hundreds of thousands of people of the right to vote for trivial reasons. And whether it's Georgia, Wisconsin, Texas, let's enforce the second section of the 14th Amendment. Uh, I doubt it'll happen, but um, the, it was put in there to prevent states from denying large numbers of people the right to vote. That's great, that sounds like a good topic. A quixotic plan of mine. <laughs> a good topic for a podcast, so maybe we can persuade okay. you to do it. Um, we have an anonymous attendee asking, why were the 14th and 15th Amendments necessary if the 14th Amendment seemed to include all persons? And a similar question, why would a hypothetical ERA be necessary if all persons are covered under the 14th Amendment? So we're now gonna read the 15th Amendment, which says, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state 
on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Once again, that enforcement clause, the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Professor Foner, if the 14th Amendment included all persons, why was it necessary to pass the 15th Amendment, which extended the political right to vote to African-American males? Well, the 14th Amendment doesn't say anything about the right to vote. And in the thinking of the time, there were, a lot of these people thought there were distinctions among different kinds of rights, civil rights, political rights, social rights. This, the, the, the 14th Amendment is mostly about what they call civil rights. Uh, but the right to, in fact, the, fourth, the second clause actually seems to acknowledge that states can deny you the right to vote. It just will, they'll lose some members of Congress, but they can do that if they want. So a positive statement of the right to vote was necessary in addition to the uh, 14th Amendment. Now, I would say in parentheses, there were some of the women's rights activists took exactly the position that, hey, wait a minute, we're now, we're citizens, we're born here. Voting is one of the privileges or immunities of citizens. And so women now have the right to vote as citizens. Elizabeth, uh, Susan B. Anthony actually voted in the 1872 presidential election and then was put in jail because she violated New York law by voting. But she said, no, under the 14th Amendment, I am, I've been given the right to vote. However, the Supreme Court never <laughs> accepted that argument. So the 15th Amendment deals directly with black people's right to vote. It says you cannot deny anybody the right to vote because of race, right? Um, radical Republicans wanted a more positive statement. They didn't want a negative thing. You can't deny people the right to, they wanted a positive one. Every male citizen, they didn't want to give it to women yet. Every male citizen, 21 years or older has a right to vote. What is the difference? The 15th amendment left open other ways of limiting the right to vote. Uh, poll taxes, literacy tests, um, very understanding clauses, um, ways that states could and eventually would deny black people the right to vote without mentioning race. But because of the poverty of the black population, because of the fact they hadn't had access to education, um, a literacy test, a poll tax would eliminate large numbers of African-American from voting without mentioning race. If you pass a law saying, hey, black people can't vote, that would be a violation of the 15th Amendment. But unfortunately, in the 1890s and early uh, 1900s, the Supreme Court said, well, if you don't mention race, it's okay. Uh, as long as it's not specifically geared in the language to... Uh, now, again, here's another weird thing. Two days ago in the decision about juries, Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, uh, said the majority opinion said, look, this Louisiana law we're, that we're overturning was passed in 1898. And the people in the, con in the convention there, it said, we're passing this law in order to convict more black people of crimes. It was explicitly racist, the reason they passed the law. And that's a reason for overturning it. But unfortunately, a century or so ago, where even though the people in Southern legislatures had said, we're passing these laws to stop black people from voting. At that point, the Supreme Court said, ah, we, we can't deal with what they say in the legislature. We just have to deal with the specific language of the law, which doesn't mention race. So the intention of the people writing the law is today considered a legitimate 
point of consideration by the court. But, you know, a century or so ago, they said, no, we're not going to get into the intentions uh, because then we'll never be able to get out of that morass. So it, the modes of interpreting the Constitution obviously, obviously change over time. The problem with the 15th Amendment was it could too easily be circumvented by states using non-racial qualifications, but with the purpose of denying almost all African-American men the right to vote. Thank you so much for that. Friends, I think you can see my screen. Uh, I've called up the Interactive Constitution's drafting table, and you'll see that Senator Wilson proposed an amendment on February 7th that would have covered the situations that Professor Foner just mentioned. It would have prohibited poll taxes, literacy tests, other discriminatory means of disenfranchising African-Americans that although formally neutral, they didn't use the word race, were intended to and had the effect of disenfranchisement. So Wilson's amendment says, no discrimination shall be made in any state among the citizens of the United States in the exercise of the elective franchise or in the right to hold office in any state on account of race, color, nativity, property, education, or creed. So that would have forbidden literacy tests. You can't prove that someone has a good education before they can vote. Poll taxes, we have to pay to vote. That's a property discrimination. Had that passed, many of the problems Professor Foner mentioned would have been avoided. It didn't. And as a result, we had just the result that he suggested with lots of states adopting these discriminatory ruses and um, it's, lots it, of disenfranchisement. Yeah, it's an interesting feature of our constitution that when it comes to voting, there is not actually a national standard of who can vote. The way the Constitution deals with voting is by eliminating certain grounds for denying the right to vote. So race here in 1920, women, you cannot deny people the right to vote because of sex. Later, the poll tax amendment, you cannot deny people the right to vote because of not being able to pay a tax. But um, there's no positive statement Every citizen has the right to vote. That's not in, we have 50 different sets of state laws which deal with voting. Uh, and so even though there are certain things they cannot do, there are a lot of things they can do. And today, some states are using all sorts of methods to try to limit the right to vote in one way or another because we don't have a national affirmative statement of the right to vote for all citizens. Great. Well, we did it. We got through the core essence of the 13, 14, the 15th Amendments. Friends, we have 15 minutes left. We're going to stop right at two. And you have so many great questions in the Q&A box. So let's get through as many of them as we can. Uh, Luke Han asks, were Chinese immigrants denied citizenship like African-Americans in the late 19th century? And was a law passed to help them out like the Native Americans? Uh, that's a very, very good question. And to answer it, we have to go back to 1790 the first naturalization law, which um, is basically, you know, how people who are immigrants from abroad can become American citizens. And that law opened up the ability to emigrate and become a citizen, but it, only, it said in the law, only white people can become naturalized citizens. So immigrants, Chinese immigrants, and many of them began to arrive in the 1840s and 50s in California, the West Coast, um, they could never become naturalized citizens. And in fact, it was only in the 1940s that people from China were allowed to become naturalized citizens of the United States. But once the 14th Amendment is passed, their children born in the United States are citizens. 
before, we said before, birthright citizenship. Anybody born in the country, except for the Native Americans, are citizens. And, that and the Supreme Court in the 1880s said, yeah, this applies to the children of Chinese. So the parents who had immigrated could never be citizens. But the children born here, same thing about the Japanese. In Japanese American society, you have the Issei and the Nisei. I can never remember which is which. One of them is those who were born here and are citizens. One of them who are the immigrants and can never until relatively recently become citizens. So um, unfortunately, discrimination against the Chinese was extremely powerful in the 19th century, particularly on the West Coast. And indeed, um, California and Oregon refused to ratify the 15th Amendment because they feared it would lead to Chinese voting in some way. So the citizenship status, though, the 14th Amendment, any person of Chinese origin born in the States is a citizen, just like anyone else under the 14th Amendment. Great. We have a couple of other questions, many other questions about uh, the question of citizenship. I'll just put a couple of them on the table and you can answer them together. Mark Naden asks, why are children of parents who came to the U.S. illegally automatically U.S. citizens when born in the U.S. under the 14th Amendment? Why does the doctrine of the fruit from the poisonous tree not apply? That's a doctrine from criminal law, and Professor Thorne will tell us if it applies in this case. And then we have questions about what protection do DACA individuals, uh, those are the dreamers, receive yeah. from the Constitution not having been born here? Well, that, of course, that now you're right into current politics. These are being debated as we speak here. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional scholar, really. You are a constitutional well, scholar. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a legal scholar in law school. Let me just say, yes. I'm not a professor in a law school. Yes, so much better. But I'm very interested in these questions. So, you know, um, to my mind, and this is, you know, the language of the 14th Amendment is quite clear. It doesn't matter who your parents are to become a citizen if you're born here, with the exception of these immigrants, these British diplomats or somebody. Um, what if your parents are bank robbers and they're in jail? Does that mean you're not a citizen if you're born while you, let's say your mother is in jail and you're born there, she's a criminal. Does that mean you're not a citizen? You may have violated the law, but your mother has violated the law, but that does not deprive you of citizenship. Undocumented immigrants, to my mind, are subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. That is, if they commit a crime, they are going to be arrested and tried and whatever. Um, they can't claim diplomatic immunity like others can. So to me, the language is very clear. Now, you know, President Trump last year said he was going to change this with an executive order, but you can't have an executive order erasing part of the Constitution. That's not allowed. Um, so, uh, you know, th this is an issue now. The numbers of people like that are rather low, but um, the principle that anyone born here, regardless of who their parents are, is a fundamental American principle. Now, as to DACA people, you're right. They were not born here. They came as children. They're not citizens of the United States, obviously, unless they eventually go through a naturalization uh, process. Um, but, uh, you know, so there's, I don't know, the Supreme Court is supposed to rule on this sometime this, this uh, session, right? There's a case about the president's, the president has issued an executive order to limit or even end the DACA program. Can he do that? 
I don't know. I'm not one of the nine members of the Supreme Court, and I hesitate to try to predict what they will rule. But their status is a little bit different than someone born in the United States. That hesitation is is prudent because it's a complicated case. And friends, if you listen to our podcast on the DACA case, you'll learn that it's partly a question of administrative law. The Obama administration passed DACA without congressional approval by executive order. And the question is whether President Trump is allowed to withdraw by his own executive order, an executive order that he claims that President Obama didn't have the authority to issue, but which uh, the Supreme Court divided on that initial question. And there are also technical questions of what hoops you have to jump through in order to repeal a previous executive order with a subsequent one. So it's a question of statutory and administrative law and worth uh, checking out. Professor Foner, one of our great students asks, how should we think about the sovereignty of the states after the adoption of the Civil War amendments? How did the balance of power change? The recent dust up between the president and governors reminds us that these questions remains. That's from our great NCC member, Tim Garden in Iowa. Well, you know, as uh, as uh, Jeffrey Rosen pointed out earlier in this discussion, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, begins with the words, Congress shall make no law. The Bill of Rights, originally as adopted, were a series of restrictions on the federal government. Freedom of speech, uh, you know, they have a trial by jury. Oh, they, they didn't apply to the states back then. And so even though the Constitution was written in order to strengthen the federal government, as opposed to the Articles of Confederation, which preceded it, uh, many of the framers did fear that too powerful a federal government would uh, be a, would violate uh, people's liberties. And so they put these restrictions in the Bill of Rights. Now, if you fast forward to the three Reconstruction Amendments, each one of them, as we saw, has a final section Congress shall have the power to enforce this. All three of those are trying to limit what the states can do and make the federal government the arbiter of protecting people's rights, not the states. So just think about it this way, from Congress shall make no law to Congress shall have the power. That's a fundamental shift from restricting the federal government to empowering the federal government and now restricting the states. So in the aftermath of slavery, in the aftermath of the black codes of the southern states, um, the Republican majority in Congress at that time felt that the states were more likely to violate citizens' rights, and therefore the federal government had to become what um, Charles Sumner, the senator from Massachusetts, called the custodian of freedom. It's now, so that's a big shift in the federal system, the relationship between the national government and the state government. Thank you for that. Uh, Janiah Hoover, first of all, helpfully notes the niece I were born here. Thank you for that, uh, Janiah. And then she asks, can you talk a little more about who is considered white and who, how that changed over time? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Yeah, that, boy, how many hours do you have? Yeah, you know, only four minutes. <laughs> race is one of those things that is a powerful idea, but has no real scientific validity. In, in before the Civil War, different states defined who was white in different ways. It had to do with how many grandparents or great-grandparents. You could be white in one state and black in another state, which suggests it wasn't really that scientific a concept. And all through uh, American history, there have been cases in court about people claiming whiteness because privileges and powers come with being considered 
white. Uh, Abraham Lincoln defended a man uh, who was who had married a white woman and was said to not be white, and he insisted he was white, that he was Portuguese in origin, and he was white. And, you know, Lincoln pointed out, if, if the court declares him black, he's going to be violating the law because he married a white woman and he couldn't vote anymore because uh, black people couldn't vote in Illinois. So it mattered whether you were considered white or not. And, you know, one can, I'll just give you one other example, the famous case of Thind, in the 1920s. Thind was a guy from India who had emigrated to the United States and fought in World War I for the United States. And then he tried to become a naturalized citizen and he was denied that right because as I said before, the naturalization law says only white people can become citizens. And they say, you're not white, you're from India, you're not white. He said, no, I am white, I'm a Brahmin from India, I'm white. Supreme Court had to decide whether Thind was white or not. They decided he wasn't. No, he's not white. Why? Why isn't he white? They said, because your average man in the street looking at Thin would not consider him white. What kind of legal doctrine is that? To go out in the street and you ask someone about someone else and that's their legal status. It shows you how crazy the whole system of race is in our history, and yet it has real consequences for people. It certainly does. Um, there are a whole bunch of great legal questions, um, including Larry, on what basis does SCOTUS determine if a particular group is entitled to protection under Equal Protection Clause? And uh, John Baruch, who asks, why did Congress have to pass another, another Civil Rights Act in 64? Friends, John and Eric, if you can come back tomorrow, I'm going to talk about the legal details of the 14th Amendment, recapping some of this stuff. So I promise I will answer those questions then. I want to give Professor Foner a chance to sum up all of the incredible learning that he's uh, shared with us. And uh, I'll just start with a final question. We have several attendees who asked you what you thought of the Netflix documentary 13. So you can maybe tell us that and then give us your final thoughts about what you want our great students to remember about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. I commend 13th because I commend anything that increases interest in the Constitution, and 13th certainly did that. I am not a big fan of Hollywood history, generally speaking. I think there was a certain, I don't know how to put it, conspiratorial undertone to 13th, which suggested that the people in 1865 kind of knew that mass incarceration was coming a century and a half later and kind of laid the groundwork for that. I don't think that's true. But I think the treatment of the present day and the, the large amount of prison labor that exists today, not just 150 years ago, was very eye-opening. So I commend them for directing attention to a serious uh, social issue. What do I want people to come away with, I, I, you know, I think it's the title of my book, The Second Founding, that these three amendments really fundamentally changed the Constitution. They should be up there with the Constitutional Convention in our understanding of the Constitution. They weren't just minor adjustments to an existing document. They really changed the whole federal system. They changed the definition of citizenship. They changed the understanding of the rights we have as Americans. And so to understand our world today, uh, our society today, I think we, we need to at least know something about those three amendments uh, put into the Constitution a century and a half ago. Thank you so much, Professor Foner, for taking the time to educate all of us. Friends, we are so lucky during this time of remote learning to have the chance to sit down for an hour with Professor Foner. 
such a great scholar of the Reconstruction Amendments. We're all grateful for his learning and looking forward to seeing as many of you as possible tomorrow where we will review the legal essence of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Thank you, Professor Foner, and see you tomorrow. Thank you, Jeffrey. This episode was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Scott Bomboy and Curry Sautner. Our constitutional classes for the 2020 to 2021 school year begin August 31st. The schedule and the link to register are available at constitutioncenter.org learn. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jacqueline.